Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual and spirited community with really good music. Dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. I extend a special welcome to those of you visiting with us this morning. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person. So in the spirit of that heritage, I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Would you say with me the words that we use to light our chalice, which is the symbol of our faith? Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Our call to worship this morning is from Albert Schweitzer. At times, our own light goes out and is rekindled by a spark from another person. Each of us has cause to think with deep gratitude of those who have lighted the flame within us. When we gather to celebrate or when we gather in sympathy, there are people gathered in this congregation with roots and practices in uh, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, neo-paganism, uh, secular humanism, um, a lot, etc. All of the major world religions. And if I etc. your religion, I most humbly apologize. <laughs> what is it that holds us together then? Well, many things. One of which in this congregation is our mission, which guides us as we make our decisions and as we move forward into the future together. We wrote it on the wall so that we say it every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. I'm not sure I can pronounce this right, but our reading is for, from Rabindranath Tagore. When the heart is hard and parched up, come upon me with a shower of mercy. When grace is lost from life, come with a burst of song. When tumultuous work raises its den on all sides, shutting me out from beyond, come to me, my Lord of silence, with thy peace and rest. When my beggarly heart sits crouched, Shut up in a corner, break, in the, break open the door, my king, and come with the ceremony of a king. When desire blinds the mind with delusion and dust, O thou holy one, thou wakeful, come with thy light and thy thunder. At this time in our service, we breathe together deeply for meditation and prayer. We make our minds and bodies still so that we might speak to God as we understand odd or listen or listen to our inner wisdom or just follow our breath as it moves in and out of our bodies. Let us enter together into the wise silence, understanding that in this congregation, 
The tiny noises of babies and the noises of life count as part of the silence. Congregational Healthy Relations Covenant, Come on up. and um, it is on a bulletin board in the fellowship hall, but today it's also in your order of service, where it is pretty often. Um, this is the Healthy Relations team, and Edwards is also on it. Anne, are you here? All right. Anne was the director for this skit. This is Elizabeth Kubala and Margaret Borden. And um, sometimes our covenant comes into play in our interactions in more subtle and less subtle ways. Our covenant talks about communicating respectfully and kindly. Penelope and Dorothy are talking at coffee. I'm so glad I ran into you. How are you doing? Good. I've been wanting to tell you about this book I've been reading. <clears throat> it's called White Trash, The 400-Year Untold History of Class in America. There we oh, go. that's a mouthful. I know it is a mouthful, and it t- talks about how... <laughs> so I can talk to you about them. So Penelope and Dorothy are talking, and Penelope is what we call a talker. Right now, right now, Dorothy is giving her good listening cues. She's making eye contact and nodding. Let's see what happens next. So, like I was, uh, it talks all about how, um, well, slavery created this class. And and anyway, let me, let me, let me finish here. This class that, that, that this lower white trash class and hold on, hold on, let me finish. At this point, Dorothy has made a couple of attempts to engage. Dorothy realized that this is going to be more of a monologue than a dialogue. (laughs) Notice how her enthusiasm for this encounter Fades. And uh, even though it's a very long book, it's about this thick, but you know, about a third of it is uh, footnotes. And so it's not. Dorothy has looked at her watch. She has broken off eye contact. Dor- uh, Penelope has looked up into a corner of the room. Sometimes she even closes her eyes while she's talking. So she does not see the cues. But Dorothy has some skills for this situation. What would you do? And um, the first introduction and the preface are really good about... You'll have to excuse me, Penelope. I need to talk to Don over there before he runs off. Nice to see you. Good to see you, too. Elizabeth Kubala, Margaret Borden, directed by Anne Edwards. Some of us have been in this situation before, yes? 
Some of us on the side of the listener and some of us on the side of the talker and some of us both. To paraphrase the Quakers, everyone's a little difficult except me and thee. <laughs> and even thee's a little difficult. I'm talking about difficult people today. And Penelope is just one kind of difficult person. The talker, the overtalker, is difficult, especially for people who are wired more toward uh, deciding what they want to say before they say it. Now, if a person is lining up their thoughts so that they can speak, a lot of times the conversation uh, dominated by the talkers who who like to hear what they think by hearing it coming out of other, their mouths. Um, and they try to talk, but by the time they get their thoughts together, the conversation has moved on and their, their thoughts are no longer apropos. So, these are people, I mean, everybody overtalks sometimes because, you know, we drink too much coffee or we have too little sleep or we get excited about something or we're nervous. But some people do it consistently and they try to control the situations by filling up all of the space with their own talking. And that way, they know how the conversation's going to go because they're the only one in it. It's a control thing. And it might be because they're out of balance internally or because they were raised up in an out-of-balance environment and they found that the only way to adjust to that, to survive, was to stay in control. So when over-talking happens at work, we might, or, or in a meeting, we might... Um, Look meaningfully at the facilitator, like, are you going to do anything about this? And the facilitator might say, thank you so much. Now let's hear from someone we haven't heard from before. Or they might do as Dorothy did and put their arm on the person's, um, put their hand on the person's arm to give a little shock to the nervous system. And then the person can maybe come out of the talking trance and... Um, do something different. And the Buddhist teaching about doing no harm comes into play in all of these talking about difficult people that I'm going to do. Do no harm to others or to yourself. Now, when someone keeps you longer than you have agreed to be kept, when someone takes from you more than you are willing to give, that is theft and it does you harm. And you do the other person harm by allowing them to continue doing you harm. Does that make sense? And sometimes when you put your hand on somebody's arm and say, I need to go. Um, or when I was in a lot of academic meetings, when I was college chaplain, uh, the chaplain's job is wonderful because there's a lot of confidential stuff in it. And so I would just look at my watch and gasp and leave the room. <laughs> It wasn't a lie. The gasp was, I've been in this meeting for an hour. <gasps> and if it feels rude to stop someone from over-talking to you, please consider that they were rude first. Sometimes they don't read your signals because they're from a different culture than you. I was a college chaplain at a Southern Women's College, and every September I would have a young woman or two in my office saying, <gasps> my roommate hates me. 
I would say, she hates you. <laughs> yes. Say, what's your evidence? Well, I come in the room and she doesn't smile. She never says, hey. She won't talk to me. She's real secretive. She's kind of grumpy. And, and she never does what I ask her to do. She doesn't help me. Finally, I realized that I needed to ask a follow-up question. Where's your roommate from? And she would go, Boston? (laughs) Or somewhere up there. Because in Southern culture... Your cues that you like another person are you lift your head and smile when they come in the room and you say, hey. If you really hate the person, you say, hey. (laughs) You got to wear earplugs to the junior league meeting. when you ask for help in the Southern culture, you say, oh, this is heavy. (laughs) And that is you asking the other person to please help you carry this. It would be the height of rudeness to say, could you help me carry this, please? But But the girl from outside the culture doesn't hear it that way. In the Southern culture, your signal for being polite is to say, can I get you some tea? Well, and if you're another Southerner being polite, you go, no, no, I couldn't. You say, no, no, I insist. No, I couldn't. Okay. If you don't want to get them tea, you stop after the second one. And everybody understands, you didn't want to get them any tea. (laughs) But if you really don't mind getting them tea, you'll ask the third time. And then if the third time is asked, then they can say, well, yes, that would be lovely. That's good manners. And if you say yes the first time, everybody gets discombobulated. (laughs) What is the matter with you? different cultures and so if so if a person is difficult for you because they're from a different culture you might need to just speak to them about it. with an i statement is what all the therapists ask you to do and since i used to be one of those i'll tell you an i statement is when you do blank i feel blank with a real feeling at the end not i feel like you're a bad person <laughs> a real feeling is like mad sad glad embarrassed that's a real feeling So, like, when you don't look up when I come in the room, I feel like maybe you don't like me. I feel ashamed. And then the person can say, oh, no, that's not it at all. I was just reading, and I say hi to you all the time. All right. What are some other techniques people have for being difficult? You could name ten of them, I'm sure. I think that people who don't listen are difficult. I mean, they hear your words, but they don't seem to sink in. And so another therapist technique for this is to just say, what have you been hearing me saying? And then they'll repeat their understanding of what you've been saying, and then you can say, yes, that's exactly it, or no, I said this and this and this too. Did you hear that? And then they'll go, Okay, so you said this and this too. And then you do it for them. And then once you're on solid ground, you go on with your conversation. Now, this works sometimes. 
I've had it not work where someone repeated exactly what I had said and seemed to understand, and yet two days later, it wasn't there anymore. And um, I did have a friend who, who said he and his wife had just stopped fighting because their therapist had made it so difficult <laughs> with all these rules, and you had to stop and say, what did you hear me saying? It's like, it's just too much trouble to fight anymore. Some people are difficult because their head is full of assumptions about you. I'm going to get a little personal now. Some people assume that if you're a lesbian woman, it means you hate men. And as the mother of two sons, that hurts me. So when I see that someone has assumed that, it is up to me to say something gently if I want the communication to stay open. But sometimes you just get tired. If you're um, a person of color, many among us are people of color, you understand that feeling of somebody talking to you and having assumptions in their head about you because of what color you are. Or because you didn't have braces on your teeth as a child. Or because you don't use grammar perfectly. Or, for any number of reasons, we make decisions about each other and we make assumptions about each other. And if you see that your communication with someone, that someone's being difficult for you because they're making assumptions about you, you might have to take a deep breath and say, I think, I think that maybe you think because I speak with a southern accent that I'm stupid. I worked with a minister in New Jersey who said, <laughs> she talked really fast, she talked really fast like this all the time. And sometimes I just had to say, oh, just say that again a little bit slower. And she was like, yeah, I always thought people who needed to talk slow were stupid. And <laughs> she said, and then by grace, she said, but now I know that's not true. Still, it's done. Other people say, oh, yes, people with southern accents, it would just make me laugh to hear them teach math. I have some Texas pure math professors that I would like for them to meet. All right. Some people are difficult because they're chaos people. Their plans are all made at the last minute. Their hair's always on fire. They're always trying to pull something out at the last minute, and the people around them are running around, and they don't know the answers to any of the questions. They say, you'll have to ask so-and-so because they're in charge of this event, and everything for the event has to go through this person who's in charge of the event. Chaos people. Or your whole staff is trying to figure out what your policies are because of what you tweet at night. Chaos is a very good way to control. It works. It controls the situation in a certain way. So if you have a team with a chaos person at the top, they don't delegate. Everything has to go through them. They want to be the only ones knowing the uh, information. I personally choose not to be on teams with people like that, or I try to be the boss, which is enough trouble in itself. But chaos is a way of controlling. Some people's technique for being difficult is what writer Julia Cameron called a wet blanket matador. Every time you get some forward motion going, they go, I don't think that'll work. 
you have suddenly you have to make your way through this thick, wet blanket. We tried that in 1996, 20 years ago. It's not going to work. So if they're in charge, you're out of luck. Some trainers recommend, I read lots of articles about this this week. Some trainers just go, just avoid these people. One guy said, fly like an eagle. Just fly above it. I was like, have you ever worked with anybody else as your boss? That's nice. Avoid them if you can. That is great. And as Michelle Obama said, who came uh, through a huge briar patch of uh, awful, racist, cruel comments her whole eight years in the White House, she said, when they go low, we go high. And she could do that because she's amazing and she's, she was the first lady. Some people... Um, who are spiritual and religious teachers tell us a very thought-provoking yet irritating thing. And that is that difficult people are our teachers. That when you run into a difficult person in your life, this is because this person is a teacher for you. This person is the Spirit's invitation to you to grow in love. One of my favorite teachers, her name is Byron Katie. People call her Katie. She has a series of questions she asks people who are having difficulties. She asks them to write out a sheet called a judge your neighbor sheet. And she says, just take all the breaks off and tell me why this person is horrible. And then tell me what you wish they would do. And how you want the situation to come out. And then she'll invite you to come talk to her in a chair next to her in front of hundreds of people. And this young woman, you can see this for free on on the internet. She has hundreds of videos up of her talking to people. So this young woman comes. Katie goes, "What's what's happening with you?" What's she goes? Thought appears, sweetie. Thought appears. That's how she says it. And the woman goes. She's reading her sheet. She goes, "My mother is manipulative and controlling, deceitful and selfish." And Katie goes. Wow, what's some evidence of how she controls you? The woman's in her mid-twenties. She's thinking. She just doesn't like anything I do. She doesn't agree with me on anything. So what's some evidence of her controlling you? Well, um, I made a book of my values, a scrapbook of my values, and I showed it to her and asked her what she thought. And she said, I think all your values are wrong. And Katie said, "Mm mm-hmm. Sweetheart, she's your mother. She's doing her job. Mothers always disagree with their children's values. That's their job. She said, how do you feel when you think this thought? That's one of her main questions. And the woman goes, well, I feel terrible. I I feel angry and... How do you act when you hold on to this thought? She said, well, I don't talk to my mother. I I don't want to go visit her. 
Then there's the famous turnaround. Katie said, let's turn this around. So you read, my mother is, blah, 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 only you read, I am. She goes, I am manipulative, controlling, deceitful, and selfish. Katie said, is that true? The young woman goes, I don't know. She said, you took your values book to, her, to your mother and asked her what she thought. But you didn't want to hear what she thought. You wanted her to think what you thought. Was that manipulative? I guess. She said, you, go, you want your mother to have your same values. You want your mother to approve of the things that you do. She's like, yes. And you manipulate her to see that she does that. Yes. Is that selfish? Yes. She's like, sweetheart, read the next thing. What do you want your mother to do? She said, I want my mother to respect me. She says, turn that around. I want me to respect me. She said, yeah. Honey, they're your values. And her values are her values. And if you respect your values, there's no way she can control you. Just by disapproving of you. Anyway, it's very interesting. And what it tells us is that difficult people are our teachers. And she says, oh, and if you change yourself, your mother's still not going to change. She's going to be herself. I'm not telling you a sneaky way to change your mother. And so at the end of the sheet, the woman had written, I will never be manipulated or controlled again. And the turnaround for that is accepting reality. Your mother is very different from you, and she will never agree with you on your values. So you might as well look forward to who she is. And so woman's reading, she goes, I look forward to being controlled again. <laughs> Katie's like, yeah, if you look forward to it, she can't hurt you. Sometimes it might work. She calls this form of inquiry the work, and you can Google it. Just go Katie, the work, and everything she has is free, which I like, except for her teaching seminars. But all the worksheets and everything is, I respect that too. All right, so how do you deal with difficult people? Well, you avoid them if you can. The 12-step people say, take your sails out of their wind. You don't know what that means. Just ask yourself when you're in a situation with a difficult person, what would it mean for me to take my sails out of their wind? Sometimes you change your environment and sometimes you change yourself. You talk to them directly with love if you can. Make your position clear. Be clear and loving in what you ask them to do instead of what they're doing. You say, I will be able to stay in conversation with you longer if you speak to me with respect and kindness. Pima Chodron, a renowned Buddhist teacher, says, take the target off your back. She says, everybody is caught up in the fire of aggression. Everybody's on fire with aggression. And if you can let go of some of that fire, if you can tamp down the fire, Katie would never say let go of the fire. She would say, can you think of a sane, stress-free reason why you should hold on to that? I like that better because it doesn't wake up the oppositional mule in me. 
But Pima Chodron says, tamp down the fire of aggression. See if you can practice. Practice your meditation. Practice your character building. And be a less aggressive person. Now, I have to tell you, this works sometimes too. Rabbi Jesus said it too. He said, do not return evil for evil, but return good for evil. He didn't say this will earn you a crown in heaven. He said, this will drive your enemies crazy. I have a friend who tried this on her husband as they were getting divorced. He was a very verbal guy, and he would yell at her on the phone uh, in a way that didn't give her any chance. To, she would go, uh, 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 uh. so basically a phone call was just, ah, you're a terrible person, you're, a terrible, you're killing our children, you're killing our life, blah, 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 and I'll pick up the boys at four. And finally she wrote him an email and said, you've lost your phone privileges, I will just talk to you by email now. And so the emails came. They were terrible. (laughs) He didn't care about putting it in writing. He put, you know, you're a terrible person. Anyway, finally she, um, she had been really Buddhist about it for about five years, just returning good for evil, really Christian about it, um, not being aggressive. Nothing worked. It was getting worse and worse. So finally she asked her friend at work, Charlie, to read her emails and tell her the nugget that she needed. He's going to pick them up at four. Okay, thank you. And then he would delete the rest. And they only stopped when she happened to say one day, the person who reads your email for me says that you're going to pick him up at four. (laughs) But I need to make it five. They stopped. And I don't know why he was, um, he was a minister, by the way. I don't know why he was counting on her to protect his reputation by not telling anybody. I call that the shine the sunlight on it. Technique. People count on you to keep it secret. I don't know why. So I could go on and on, which I don't have time to do. But the basic thing is the the one we have power to control is ourselves. And one way to change yourself in a situation where someone is difficult is the meta meditation or as the 12-step people call it, the resentment prayer, where you pray for the other person everything in life that you want in your life. So you pray that they would be prosperous and healthy and have good family and good friends. And I've told you about my friend Dorothy, whose sponsor told her to do this about her mother. And Dorothy said, oh, I wouldn't mean it. I couldn't mean it. That would make, you know, I I would be a hypocrite. And she said, Dorothy, you don't need to mean it. You just say it. Every day for 14 days. And Dorothy said, I'm really uncomfortable being a hypocrite. And her sponsor said, Dorothy, you're a drunk. You're a drunk. God forbid you should be a hypocrite. So the meta prayer, we're going to do one of those as our benediction. So try the resentment prayer, the meta prayer. Try doing a little research on their life to see why they turned out that way, either out of balance or from another culture where the signals are different. Try asking themselves whether it's true that they're trying to drive you crazy. Is it really true? Or are they just being themselves and they can't help it? The Chinese Book of Wisdom, the I Ching, says that you have to build your own character and that the universe gives you many opportunities. And that a good person is hard on the inside and soft on the outside. I think most of us, 
I'm just maybe speak for myself, are harder on the outside and you get all soft and mushy on the inside. And we talk about people like that. Oh, really, inside he's a big mush. But the Chinese wisdom says, make your decisions about being a good person and make your practice in being a balanced person tough on the inside so that your goodness is not sweet, it's tough and sweet. And that you can be soft on the outside because pretty soon, if something is wrong, they'll run into the the wall of your good character. And good character means nothing more than knowing more clearly, more and more clearly, what the next right thing to do is. That's life. What is the next right thing to do? Difficult people can be our spirit, can be our teachers, and they can be the spirit inviting us to grow deeper in love. Will you please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. This benediction is the meta-meditation, kind of, written by a friend of mine. It's a call and response. I sing something and you sing it back to me. Let's try it. You may be be. one last spark. spark. We all need need. to light the whole world. world. Wonderful. Now sing it for someone you love. You may be be. one last spark. We all, need we all need to light the whole world. It's a nice thought. Now sing it for somebody you're completely indifferent to. Don't look around. <laughs> you, may be you may be one last spark. One last spark. We all need. To light the whole world. world. (sighs) Last time through, we sing it for someone we have a resentment against. I know. It's like a final exam. Unless you're really tough, don't go all the way to the top. Just think of someone in mid-range resentment. (laughs) Got somebody in mind? Here we go. You may be... One last spark, spark. we all need need. to light the whole world. world. Last time we're going to sing it for ourselves again because we need some healing after that last one. This is for you. You may be be. one last spark. We all need need. to light the whole world. world. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.